0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I think this is a real inflection point for a variety of reasons, and I say this knowing that a lot of feminists are really pissed off at men for thousands of years of heteronormative patriarchy, yeah. and I I really want to say I see that, and also it's like how do we move into what's next? And we just see that in, you know, crime statistics, incarceration rates, suicide rates, violence against women rates. It's like, OK, we need to find a different approach because what we're doing is not working. And I can tell you from 40,000 young men later that when given the space to be open and heard and seen, they absolutely show up.
0: Hunter Johnson is a change maker, But if you rewind to his teenage years, making waves wasn't on his mind. Like most kids, he just wanted to fit in.
1: Yeah, we lived for the stories of the weekend of just like, you know, at our school dance, how many girls could you kiss, you know? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't from a place of like we wanted to treat women poorly, but it became about status amongst our group. But I did also know at some level it wasn't exactly right and there wasn't a level of like embodied respect and integrity inside of it. Mm -hmm. But what was more important to me at that stage of my consciousness was being cool amongst my mates.
0: Is that... The embodied sort of respect and, and knowing that at a deeper level, is that asking a lot of a teenager? Like, you sound like a pretty standard... You were a pretty standard teenager.
1: It's a really good question. I think it depends on the context that that child is growing up in.
0: And Hunter's context, though it wouldn't last, was rugby.
1: Yeah, so at that time, I wanted to play rugby for Australia and things were looking great, you know, and and it was a classic story of my rugby coach saying turn up to the game like I know you've got a big week in the sport but just turn up to the game and he actually used a, a line to me don't dog the boys now if you're not familiar with that saying basically it's like don't let the boys down right and little things like that is just like a kryptonite mm. I was like all right well I can't you do gotta that go. <laughs> you know and, and same thing of like don't snitch on your friends yeah, you know right. it's the same, there's this like code and that code can be really powerful if it's done in a really healthy constructive way but it can also be used to really manipulate.
0: Hunter took the bait, he showed up to the game, and what happened next would change everything for him. And it would have ripple effects for years to come, impacting thousands of boys and teens across Australia. I'm not just being dramatic, though I am a little bit, but he would literally make it his mission to change how young people think about masculinity.
1: My name's Hunter Johnson, and I'm the CEO of a charity which teaches emotional intelligence to teenage boys, and it's called The Man Cave.
0: You are listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. So, last week we explored the origins of the term toxic masculinity, why it's getting trickier to talk about, and how the internet is entrenching toxic ideas about gender roles. This week we get more specific. One man's story of being forced to reckon with his own ideas of masculinity and how he's trying to help other teen boys consider theirs. Today, tackling toxic masculinity before it takes hold. One teen at a time.
1: So I grew up in a very, as I said, hyper-masculine culture, which at times I loved. Like I loved the competitiveness, the camaraderie, like the brotherhood. Uh, And then also there was the whole destructive side of it, which, you know, as a teenager, I wasn't necessarily conscious of and was absolutely a ringleader in. And as I reflect back with some hindsight now, it was all about really surviving my social hierarchy. So working out what was the role that I wanted to play so that I didn't get dominated by other guys in the group, but I could actually be in charge the alpha and kind of direct traffic a bit. And yeah, I did heaps of things that were out of alignment with my values. You know, I was cheeky, I would pay out my mates all the time. And also, you know, modeling my self-worth on how attractive I was or how good I was at sport or just these little materialistic external things that inherently at some level I knew wasn't actually who I was on the inside, Mm. but it was what was modeled as success around me.
0: And all of these ideas of success would come crashing down for Hunter at that fateful rugby game.
1: Yeah, I, I played this game, uh, basically, long story short, was a, a you know, very big 140 kilogram guy's knee went in my shin and, oh and my broke gosh. my leg and ended up being half an hour away from passing away from this broken leg. Wow. So had something called compartment syndrome where the bone punctures the muscle.
0: Hunter had also severed the main artery in his leg but that wasn't picked up until he was already in surgery.
1: If that wasn't detected, I would have internally bled to, oh to death. Right. So it was, um, yeah, as I said, it was incredibly traumatic. And I spent six months on the couch after that and feeling really sorry for myself and, and feeling like my everything that I attached my identity to, you know, athletic success, you know, attempt at financial success, Mm. Um, even, you know, sexual conquest and like attracting, you know, beautiful women, my Mm -hmm. attempt at that, I'll Mm -hmm. make that very clear. Um, And then also emotional repression was a big part of it. It was like, I got to deal with this myself. I can't talk to people about it. There's too much shame. I feel broken. And I think in those moments of life, that's where resilience is really born. And that's where character really comes out. And, you know, we often hear about post-traumatic stress, but my journey was actually post-traumatic growth was like it was a real teachable moment and yeah I got left with a comment by my grandpa who just said to me if you're that good at sport imagine if you could push that into something a little more meaningful. I was like, what? This is the worst thing that happened to anyone ever in my teenage psychology. And it was just one of those comments that sunk. And it wasn't like I flipped the switch overnight, but it nudged me five degrees and really slowed my my system down, my thinking down, my identity down. And I got to actually contemplate, who do I want to be? What impact do I want to have?
0: Hunter was just 16 at the time of this injury. He credits his dad for helping him through it as well.
1: Yeah, so my dad is a a psychologist and really, really helped me just to like even in hospital introduce concepts, meditation to me or using like the energy in my body to like release the pain, which I'd never heard of before. But I guess that was a really important moment. And yeah, shout out my dad. like That was great.
0: If you hadn't had your dad and your grandfather helping you in this way, what what do you think would have happened to how you thought about yourself and and the world around you?
1: Yeah, I do think it would have been a very different narrative. In saying that, I'm very fortunate as well to have, you know, really powerful women in my life as well. And, and, you know, I think the the feminine leadership and mentorship was also a really guiding part of how I moved through some of the the most vulnerable, almost life-ending moments.
0: Seven years later, at the age of 23, Hunter would co-found the man cave with his best mate. He wanted to give other boys the support and insight he'd had without them having to hit rock bottom, too. Nearly a decade later, the charity has run thousands of full-day programs in schools around the country.
1: So, we work with teenage boys aged 12 to 16, and the specific focus is around their emotional intelligence. Now, we don't necessarily tell them that because they'll be like, What the hell is this (laughs) program? But basically, we use super diverse, very intersectional facilitators who represent the diversity of masculinity. So, over the years, you know, we've had First Nations facilitators, former refugees, former child soldiers, Melbourne hipsters to, you know, footy jocks Mm -hmm. to drama kids. And we train these facilitators. a sports team in understanding the human condition so they can walk into any room of teenage boys who will test you they sniff uh if i can say it bullshit (laughs) a mile (laughs) away and you know they'll they'll make you work for it and these facilitators have to go in and be able to earn that respect build trust build rapport but they also know the different archetypes they're going to encounter so who's the jock or the alpha that just wants power and attention? How do you work with him to mobilise his leadership skills to bring the group on a positive journey opposed to him just wanting the attention? Or who's the kid who, you know, is quiet and introverted and potentially might be questioning his sexuality? How do you invite him into the space where he feels safe enough that he can speak his truth and, and then he becomes the hero of the day? Mm. So it's a real, it's a, it really is an art form. And yeah, our whole model is creating safe spaces for boys to take off the mask they're wearing.
0: One of the strategies they deploy for encouraging a broader sense of masculinity is to fashion the man cave workshop as a kind of rite of passage.
1: So we do a lot of work now around rites of passage, how you support a young person into a healthy transition into adulthood. And during that rite of passage, they'll let go of the, in our context, the boy behaviors. And what I mean by that is boy behavior being I am center of the universe. Life is about me, it's about conquest, it's about power, it's about control, it's about dominance and then letting go of that and actually stepping into healthy man psychology, which is I am a part of the universe. Life is about service. It's about being noble, humble, uh, community, trust, and actually just living a life of service to something greater than yourself. And we don't have mainstream rites of passage anymore. So there's this delayed adolescence and we see some of that boy behavior still play out in many, many men who are in positions of influence, power, privilege, and the decisions that they're making are not necessarily for the overall community. It actually comes about keeping control and power.
0: Mm, And I'm really... I don't know any teenage boys in my life currently. I don't know what they're thinking or saying about gender these days. So when you're working with these boys, what kind of messages do you find they've internalized or, you know, are are dealing with that you're having to counter?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting time for young men. Like the story that they're growing up with is that whether right or wrong, that they feel that they're toxic. And it's really, you know, we're in the Inherently post- toxic. Inherently toxic. And this is what's so nuanced because they feel like they're growing up, cleaning up a mess that they didn't create.
0: If you listen to last week's episode, this issue will sound familiar. Hunter has an interesting way of dealing with it.
1: And that's one thing that I find amazing about this whole conversation around, you know, whether it's toxic masculinity or post Me Too or post Harvey Weinstein is these young men can't actually understand the gravity of something like the patriarchy or gravity of what is privilege when their life has been extraordinarily hard to them. And I think that's the thing about struggle is it's all relative. Mm. Um, But yeah, you know, we ran a session and one of the teachers came up to me and was like, you know, there's there's such a bad problem with toxic masculinity in this classroom. And I was like, oh, okay, well, have you ever um, asked them if they know what that means? And she was like, no. I go, do you use that, you know, to tell them that they are toxic masculinity? And she goes, yes. I go, how's that go for you? She (laughs) goes, yeah, they hate it. I (laughs) go, yeah, great. Well, let's use this as a teachable moment. And I just stopped the whole program. I was like, hey, raise your hand if you've heard the language toxic masculinity. All 50 hands go up. I go, great. Who actually knows what it means? maybe like three out of 50 hands go up. I go, right. who would like to have a conversation about this topic? And people are like, yeah, we never get to talk about it. I go, great. Well, let's just start. Do Are we saying that all masculinity is toxic? And then there's a discussion about it. You've got different points of view and it's all welcome. You know, some kid might be saying yes, some kid might be saying no. And we use that to go, okay, well, what do we collectively think about this? And what do you individually think? And how do we respect those viewpoints? And then after that, we start to talk about, well, what are some of the behaviors that might be associated with someone who is identified as toxic masculinity? Okay, well, what's the other side of that? What is healthy masculinity? Okay, and ultimately, what do you know is your truth? right? Because you've got all this social conditioning, all this noise, all these messaging. What do you know is your truth? And that's a very different way to have a conversation with someone where you can make them feel they can be messy, they can be politically incorrect, they can disagree with someone respectfully. Mm. That is really rare and that's really what we're trying to do.
0: So is the the term toxic masculinity a bit of a hang-up right now? Like the boy's don't really have a sense of what it is. So they're getting caught up on the label without actually dealing with some of the harmful elements of yeah, masculinity.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's And so I often will very rarely use that term. You know, I think <laughs> it's almost if I put my marketing hat on, it's a branding challenge, mm. you know, and and often, you know, I think about if you talk to someone about, or oh, a young man about gender equality, if I go, when you think about gender equality, what do you think of? They go, women. I go, okay. Well, when you think of race, what do you think of? They go, person of color. I'm like, okay, when you think of someone's sexual orientation, what do you think of? They go, someone in the queer community or LGBTIQ plus community. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's just pause. What's missing from all of those associations in your bias just (laughs) there, right? It's the dominant major privilege player. Isn't that interesting? And you're not wrong, right? We're humans. We have our biases, but Let's have a conversation about that. And I think what we're seeing with toxic masculinity is the same thing. It's so easy for people to get protective about it. Yeah. Um, And I think that's a really interesting thing is this like this dance of working and supporting men to understand that, you know, inherently there is privilege in being a male. That doesn't mean your life hasn't been hard or there hasn't been struggle. But what's hard about when the privilege or the toxic masculinity statements come out is a lot of these men are going, well, you don't know me. You yeah. don't know what I've been through. I'm not definitely not like old mate over there who's had this dreamy life. Yeah, yeah. So it's these layered, <laughs> layered things. And I think it also is very tribal. You know, I think there's some very deep-seated behavioral, evolutionary behaviors that are still ingrained in us as as humans.
0: Like competitiveness and dominance. Yeah, and and
1: protect your group, you know. And and I think this is why I think, you know, authenticity is so powerful, right? And that's where I see some of these, you know, big social media influencers, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, because they have so much airtime and their Mm. platforms are so big, they speak for so long, people get to see a perceived sense of their authenticity. So they feel an association to them. And so there is suddenly a loyalty that's there because they they can trust them right. and that they're advocates for for these young men as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Going back to um, when you get below the defensiveness about how masculinity is talked about today, what are some of the harmful messages or ideas that you are encountering with young men today in terms of how they think about women or how they think about themselves um, and what they're meant to be like in the world?
1: Yeah, well the first thing I'll say is at their core I, I've my experience is that many men or young men don't fundamentally believe the message that they might perform. But the performance is protection, Mm. is the way to think about that. And it's a way to accumulate status, effectively like a currency amongst your mates, right? And underneath that, what we see sometimes from young men is that like it is about, similar to what I mentioned before, it's about an accumulation of material means, whether it's money, cars, wealth, positions of authority, dating the most beautiful person you can date, um, having an anti a relationship of like anti-authority, like I'm my own person, I'm right. independent, you can't control me. These are behaviors that kind of get exhibited and played out. Okay. But ultimately underneath it all, if you can kind of dance with a bit of the, you know, the, the testing and the performance and actually see who that person is at their core. And also I'll say is be able to hold that as well. It's like quite a my language for it is like an embodied masculinity. So, you know, be able to be with them pretending they don't give a shit or, you know, them <laughs> pretending like, no, nah, whatever, man, you know. <laughs> and and it it takes a while for them to kind of sniff you out and, and see yeah. if you, you've earned their respect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the gateway to doing that is actually just, as I said before, being authentic, not trying to come in there as this polished example, but you know, sharing real stories of what life was like when you were 14 yeah. is a gateway to trust.
0: Yeah, apart from sort of them having to suss you out and decide if they trust you. Yeah. What are the biggest hurdles you face trying to really connect with boys?
1: Uh, a lot of young men actually haven't had many strong positive male role models in their life. And so they're in a school environment where they spend a lot of time and school's still very autocratic in how it is run. It's like rote, learn and regurgitate information from someone at the front, just telling you things. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like the inner worlds of the, these young men, which are just abundant with feelings and expressions and emotions, um, they've had very little chance to kind of have a training ground to start to flex some of those emotions and be exposed to, you know, men who can actually sit there in tears and speak their truth and not worry that their masculinity is going to fall away mm. into dust. Mm. I think the role modeling of that, is incredibly powerful, but also that these, you know, role models have range in their identity. So that they can, you know, be emotional, be vulnerable, ask for help, you know, seek nurturing, but also the next moment or the next day can actually step into stoicism, can actually go, no, I need to pull my socks up and get on with this, mm-hmm. right? That is very rare, I think, to find, you know, men with this emotional range. And the way that I think about this current state of masculinity is we're a time in between stories. So, you know, the models of masculinity or the script of masculinity that say I've inherited it's very different to what my dad or my grandfather inherited. And we also gotta think about the context of those scripts as well. So, you know, my grandfather was a post world war, Mm. you know, and so it was like, suck it up, get on with it. Like things are way worse, you know. Alcohol might help you through this and then, you know, my Dad's generation was more, you know, setting up the economy, work hard, get the degree, do the job, you'll be happily ever after. And we're kind of seeing a lot of people going, shit, that was a bit of a lie. <laughs> um, and then, you know, my generation is kind of in between stories. Like I'm 32 and, you know, I think about my 18-year-old brother, you know, the, their story. Like it's, it's very different. And so I think we are in between stories now going, okay, how do we... What are, the, what are the universal values or the character traits of masculinity that we can hold on to? And then what is it we can let go of? And that's a really interesting thing for a whole, like, uh, 50% or so of the mm. population to be moving through uh, at different levels of education and also different levels of trauma.
0: Hunter reckons we're in an especially bumpy time right now, post-pandemic than ever.
1: I think having everyone sent to their bedrooms for like two and a half years to then watching content that was all about capturing eyeballs and slowly we did start to see and we have started to see the radicalization of young men's points of view, belief system, you know, even the mandates of COVID, how divisive that was for people. And so we're starting to see these young men actually quite disenfranchised with the world. And I think that is a real worry and we need to do something about it. And... I think the paradox in this is that young men, whilst might be a problem, are also the solution in this. We have to educate young men and put a real focus, similar to like we did with young women in STEM education, young women in politics, how we're still trying to like fan that flame. I really think we need to do the same thing for young men and their emotional worlds.
0: To better reach these teenagers and more of them, the Man Cave isn't just delivering programs on the ground in schools. They're now also on gaming platforms.
1: Basically, we log on to a gaming platform called Twitch and Mm -hmm. our facilitators are three nights a week streaming on the platform talking about mental health, relationships, sex, death, in a really kind of entertaining but educational way as well.
0: That's amazing. That's exactly where you need to be meeting these kids. It
1: was a COVID innovation because we were like we have Zoom fatigue. Can you imagine <laughs> a teenager? Yeah. Um, you know, and we're like, right, how do we, our, a, a philosophy of ours is how do we meet them where they're at, you know, right, and where are they? They're on their devices. Mm-hmm. They're on their consoles. Mm-hmm. And we go, great, esports is growing. So how do we start to build this online community that is like a positive, safe space where they can ask, you know, anonymous questions about things that they're dealing with and we can now start to track um, young men who come in and then also start to share and then you watch the accountability they're taking in their life their responsibility for themselves or if they've had a conflict they talk about it and then they start to do something positive about it all the way till we had a, a young indigenous boy named Bo just found us online hadn't been through one of our programs was like I love this chat it's been like my highlight for the Aww. last like couple months and he's like how can I get you to my school and he lives in a regional school in New South Wales and we're like, oh, mate, here's how you do it. Da, da, da. Anyway, we get to the school, Bo's fully kitted out in Man Cave merchandise. <laughs> I'm like, you're a legend. And, um, you know, we run this amazing program and Bo's the you know the local hero. And mm. it's like, wow, that's when technology and social media can be really positive. Yeah. And so we're starting to really kind of build that groundswell now. So it's not only kids who finish the program that want to stay engaged, but also we're now starting to find other young men are seeking out the uh, Twitch program as well.
0: Yeah. Tell me a bit more about some of the feedback you get from the teenagers you work with.
1: Yeah. Uh, listen, it's truly incredible. Like last week we got an email from a guy who we ran a, a camp with seven years ago with a bunch of boys who were on the edge of juvenile detention uh, and they didn't have positive male fathers in their lives. And he, out of the blue, hit us up and <laughs> goes, sup fellas. I was meaning to reach out for the last few years, but I just need to say like, I really didn't want to go to that camp. But I went and holy shit, that changed my life. Like seeing other boys in that true circle sit down and openly share, absolutely changed. I was a dropkick, I was a bully, and now I'm a male sports teacher at school so that I can help other young men who are just like me you know, and that's seven years ago, Mm. all the way to, you know, we've run a program where the activity was, if you really knew me, you would know. And the idea is to give boys, if they feel comfortable enough, we've set up the safe space. It's a confidentiality agreement, but a space to just tell their truth around something that they've always wanted to share, but they've Mm. never had the chance. And, you know, one boy goes, he was in year eight, he goes, well, if you really knew me and I've always wanted to say this, I'm actually gay. Mm. And, it actually really affects me when you, you know, we use it as banter, but you say that's so gay and it has a major effect. And I remember just going, it was one of those like pin dropping moments. And I went, Hey Tom, like, have you ever shared that before? He goes, well, my parents know, but I've always wanted to share it at school. And I go, how do you feel sharing it? And he's like, well, I'm actually a bit worried how it's going to be received. I was like, fair enough. It was really brave. Quick question. Who's got enormous respect for Tom right now? You know, mm. 30 hands go up. I go, great, love to hear from some of you. What do you respect about it? First kid was like, man, I had no idea. I just said it as banter. The next kid was like, oh, dude, I actually did think you were gay and um, I was just kind of testing it. Wow. And then he's like, I'm really sorry oh. for doing that. I acknowledge the impact on you. And then the final one was a teacher next to him, like a young 33-year-old teacher, well-dressed, goes, hey, I'm really proud of you because it took me until three years ago where I was 30 to share my sexuality with my friendship group wow. and i just want to let you know that i'm here to support you at school if you need anything i know how hard this can be and i just really honor your bravery and they've gone on to have this beautiful connection like they run the school runs they're like um rainbow round against their rival school now and again, it was this moment of like safe authenticity. And then we stay in touch with that school. We make sure everything's okay. And it was just, we, we have these beautiful moments en masse that mm. really just reflects the, like, the inner worlds of these young men. And, you know, similar to my narrative, I think, having that little intervention. And I think to, to bring it back, so much of the statistics, but also the funding around whether it is mental illness, suicidality, depression, but also family violence um, or violence against women, the systems are geared around crisis management. So we wait till something goes wrong, and we throw money at the symptom. And our whole belief is why don't we go early intervention? Why don't we go positive? And why don't we like really back these young men mm. in for the, the, like the incredible, beautiful, strong, kind young men they can be. And it's made an impact, so it's, it's exciting.
0: Do you have any advice for parents who might be listening who have boys in their life that they're worried about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I just massive respect to parents that are even looking at this because I think, you know, we encounter many parents who are not, like they might care, but you know, the action sometimes doesn't follow. So so really as young and as often as you can talking about things like your family values and then investing in experiences as a family, you know, going and doing something that's like as a unit, whether it's one adventure a year, it doesn't have to be this bougie thing, but one <laughs> adventure a year where you can spend deep quality time away from devices, technology, And in those moments, like using that to share your story. And the beautiful thing about a story is you can share a story about what life was like when you were 14, that that young person can extract certain morals, values and principles that are relevant to them at that life stage. And it's not about philosophizing or going, you should do this. It's Mm. just leave the story. A story is a storehouse of information. They can extract what they need and it can guide them. And it also humanizes the parent.
0: Finally, put the stakes sort of in in context for us. If we don't start thinking about this and addressing, you know, masculinity and how young men are relating to it, what is at risk? Uh, Just sort of give me the thesis statement writ large.
1: Well, I think we just need to look at the trajectory we're heading to kind of give us an early indication. If we continue to have men in positions of power who only think about status and control and accumulation of wealth, then we're going to have more world wars. We're going to move down the path of uh, potentially nuclear situations. Um, we're going to look at um, technology institutions not worried about the well-being of people, but actually the extraction of data at all costs, and we're going to effectively end the human race. Mm -hmm. if we don't do something about this, Mm -hmm. because we only need to look at who's in positions of significant power at the moment and the decisions that they're making are not about the collective good. And we're now in this, also this transitory time where we're, you know, we've been globalized for a while, but we're really learning how do we communicate? How do we exist as a global community that has different religions, different belief systems, different economies? So I would say if we don't continue to invest in young men and they grow up with a story that they're wrong or they're bad or all of them are toxic, they will live out that behavior because Mm. the story that we're told is often what we become because we internalize it. So I think this is a real inflection point for a variety of reasons. And I say this knowing that, you know, a lot of feminists are really pissed off at men for thousands of years of heteronormative patriarchy. And I, I I really want to say I see that and also it's like how do we move into what's next because these young men if we keep making them angry we just know they're going to lash out and I can tell you from 40,000 young men later that when given the space to be open and heard and seen they absolutely show up they want to be allies they are empathetic and they're strong and they're beautiful and it's just like how do we continue to invest in that with these young men.
0: That's Hunter Johnson, CEO of the charity The Man Cave. If you missed part one of our two-parter on toxic masculinity, do check it out, we go into far more detail on the role of certain internet personalities and their role in perpetuating toxic masculinity. Thanks to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Sana Kadar. thanks for listening, I'll catch you next time.